0: I'm going to be reading our scripture for the day from Genesis 22. Um, my name's Dave, for those of you that don't know me. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 18. So, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son. Whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, "'Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. "'We will worship, and then we will come back to you.' Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, "'Father?' "'Yes, my son,' Abraham replied." The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. This is the word of God.
1: Well, we couldn't avoid this story, even though I will tell you, as a preacher, it's a very intimidating one. Some of us think of it as cause for inspiration and wonder. Others of us find it infuriating. And what I want to encourage you to do is to set aside all of your notions. Both those that express your frustration and anger at the idea that God would ask anyone to kill their son, but also those of you that over the years have found great wonder in the provision of the ram and the thicket. Because what we want to do is to capture the original meaning. Theologians have dealt with this uh, story in massive volumes, and I'm never going to cover it today. My goal is for you to see the primary message in it. And if you're willing to look for a deeper meaning than just the story on its surface reveals, I I believe that transformation can occur. I believe that confusion can change into thankfulness, that questioning can turn into believing, that anger can turn into wonder, that accusation can turn into adoration. And so, Father, as we come to this passage... Of all the passages in the Old Testament, this one shouts out to us as a moment where we see encapsulated the wonder of the big story of redemption. And so, Father, would you uh, find each heart where they are today and enter into that heart and help them see the wonder and to leave more deeply believing and grateful for your redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to this, we have to pay attention to three plot lines that are taking place here. Two of the plot lines specific to the life of Abraham. The third plot line is the place of this experience in the meta story, the big story of the Bible. But in order to get the big picture, we have to really understand the first two. And so those three plot lines that we're going to weave together today are, first of all, Abraham's faith journey the journey of Abraham's faith. The second is the scandal of God's call. We're going to explore more of this idea of God's call because those are the two themes that intertwine throughout Abram's life. Abram's faith journey, God's pervasive call. And we'll see how both of those reach a climax in this most pivotal event. And the third area is going to be the beauty of the redemption's plan. That's where we're going. Let's begin by looking at Abraham's faith journey and how it progressed. The key verse that we often think of in relation to Abraham is uh, chapter 15, verse 6. I'd like you to say it with me. Abraham believed God... And he credited to him as righteousness. For us, Abram's life is primarily about faith. And we think, man, I hope to only have a fraction of of this man's faith. We think his greatness was rooted in his faith. But that's really not the story of Abraham. His greatness was rooted in God's call in his life. The call of God is the constancy that carries him, as we talked about last week. I will recap this idea. If you've ever thought you could never be like Abraham, trust me, you already are. (laughs) And if you've ever thought you could never have as much faith as Abraham, you you really already do. Because it was God's faithfulness to his call. That allowed God's promise to Abraham to, to continue and gave Abraham the opportunity because of God's faithfulness, not only to Abraham, but to his promises for Abraham. It was God's faithfulness and that security that gave Abraham's faith an opportunity to grow. This final testing on Mount Moriah was near the end of his life, but let's go back and really look at what his life was like. Last week, we looked at chapter 12, and we saw God's call. That's an up. That's a win, Right? At the end of chapter 12, we see famine, Egypt being a place where there was food to be had, and Abram and Sarai going down there. And we see how strong Abraham's faith was in God's promise. He's so fearful of being killed by Pharaoh because he had a beautiful wife. Talk about an insecure husband for having a great-looking wife. He says, let's just, let's just say you're, you're my sister. See, that way he won't kill me to get at you because he's going to want you. And he was right. Pharaoh saw Sarai and said, wow, that's a looker. I want her. Oh, she's only your sister? Okay, so you don't mind if I marry her? God intervenes. And the only reason why Sarai is not defiled and Abram is not judged is because God intervenes on his behalf. So that's a down. So you got an up and you got a down. You move into chapter 15, you have another up. The covenant of God to Abraham. Another highlight in his life in verse 16. He says, I'm going to give you a son. Trust me. You're going to have a son. What happens in the next chapter? Abraham doesn't trust God. He lets Sarah talk him into bedding the maidservant Hagar and having a child. Disbelief. Israel is still suffering from the result of that because the descendants of Ishmael are the Arabic race. So without in any way decrying the right and the love of God for all people, that animosity between those two started with Ishmael and with Isaac. Disobedience that is still bearing fruit today. So a high and a low. What happens next? Chapter 17. Circumcision, this great rite of passage. God setting Abraham aside, finally giving him his his new name, Abraham. Up until that time, he'd been Abram. Another really powerful highlight, albeit very painful, because Abram was 90 years old when he was circumcised. Think about that. Another high moment. What happens next? chapter 20. And what does Abraham do? Now much older, his wife much older. He's still pulling the same con. He tells Abimelech that Sarah is his sister. Abimelech's interested in her. I don't know. Maybe it was a senior citizen uh, neighborhood or something. I don't know. But the same thing happens. God intervenes. This is the great man of faith's life. In fact, if you look at the highlights all the highlights his whole life are only what God did. He is constantly falling short. Abraham was not a great man of faith. He was not. This final test in chapter 22, it says God later tested Abraham. And when we think of test as like pass, fail, that's not what the word means. The word means testing as in refining gold, By fire, to purge it. God purged Abraham. He let his faith be revealed. It basically means letting, through trial, Abraham's true faith finally emerge. And this is the moment of the greatness of his faith. It's at the end of his life. It's at the end of a long journey where God is faithful to him, even though he cannot be faithful. Now, here's what's very interesting. What chapter is this verse in? Chapter 15. What chapter are we in? Chapter 22. So what we're about to see has nothing to do with this verse that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That already happened decades earlier before this great testing. In fact, it happened right in the midst of all of this feebleness. Here is the thing. We look at that verse and we emphasize the word believe. Abraham believed God. Here's the point. We all believe. We all believe in something. Part of being human is the capacity to believe. You all believe. Even an atheist believes. You came in here in the most simple sense. Did any of you check the strength of the chair that you sat on before you sat down today? No, you just walked in and plunged down. That's your belief at work. Now, okay, it may seem reasonable to trust those chairs, but... You never know. My point is we all believe. That's not the credit. What is it that was the basis on which he achieved righteousness? It's the same thing by which we achieve righteousness. We emphasize Abraham believed. The text emphasizes who he believed. Abraham believed God. He believed God. And because he put the faith he had in the right source there was salvation see that's the lesson for us as we as we look at abraham's faith it wasn't the strength of his faith that mattered it was the direction of it in the same sense of the man with the epileptic son who came to Jesus and said would you do something if you can <laughs> and it's the one moment in the new testament that you can be clear that Jesus is being sarcastic because his response when the father says do something if you can Jesus goes if you can and then he looks at him and he says all things are possible if you have faith so Christ set up the formula your son is in need i can do anything What I'm looking for from you is faith. What's the father's response? Who remembers? It's famous. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It says he exclaimed it. Exasperated at the thought. Because being raised as a Hebrew, he was used to pass fail. If I obey the law, God will bless. If I don't obey the law, God will judge. He was used to pass fail. And so he looked at what he had and he said, It's not enough. But here's the key. It was enough. Because it wasn't the strength of his faith. It was the direction of his faith in Jesus. And that son left Christ whole. You see it? If you are waiting for your faith to be great in order to commit yourself to him, you will never make that commitment because it's not about the strength of your faith. It's about just stepping forward just stepping forward in it. So important. We're waiting for some sense of security, some sense of great confidence, some of us, in order to commit our life to Christ, to follow Christ. You're never going to get there. That comes in the journey. It's why Jesus, when he invited his disciples, said, Come, follow me. They followed him for three years before the confidence of that faith came. Let's move on and intertwine the second plot of the call of God. Uh, We see a very interesting pattern. Let's just look at verses 1 and 2 again. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied. You might want to circle that word, here I am. We're going to come back to it in verse 11 a little later on. He says it twice. This is part one. Here I am. This is Abraham responding to God out of his comfort zone. Later on, it's not quite so comfortable. (laughs) Here I am, Lord. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. When you look at this call of God, it's strikingly similar to every time that God calls Abram out. He is called to leave the comfortable and the familiar. Go. Just like he was in chapter 12. He was called to follow God, not knowing how it will end. Go to a place I will show you. And then third, he's called to offer up. To offer up something. In chapter 12, he's to offer up civilization. To give up what significance he had in that culture. And here, he's called to give up something really profound. And that is his own son. It's interesting. This verse... It's like a passive-aggressive sermon. Each statement says something important. He says, first of all, your only son. Abraham's whole future is wrapped up in Isaac, the primogenitor, the son of inheritance. His line will die. And then he says, Isaac. Remember how a name means something very important in Scripture? You know that Isaac means he laughs or he will laugh. Abraham and Sarah both got a kick out of God telling them, you're going to have a child. It's a reminder of their lack of faith in spite of God's promise and yet God's fulfillment of promise. When they named Isaac, he will laugh. They're remembering that they doubted God, but God was faithful. So he is the child of hope. He's the only son. He's the child of God's promise and provision. He's Isaac. And then there's that third phrase, whom you love. This was what most people focus on, that Abraham's love for his son was greater than his love for God, and that could very well be. Let's be clear, God asks Abraham, just as he asks us, to offer up every source of security, satisfaction, and significance. A couple of other lessons uh, when we look at God's call in Abraham's life before we move on and look at the scandal of this particular call is that the call of God is not a one time event keeps coming and coming it's the gift that keeps on giving (laughs) it's the call that keeps on calling The New Testament refers to uh, the fact that those who God called, He sanctified and justified. So we know that the calling of God is essential for our salvation. But Paul also prays the church at Ephesus that as they grow in Him, that in order to achieve all that their faith is, they will come to comprehend the fullness of the call of God. So God's call in our life is a pervasive constant. It's always calling us into new things, into new territory. But here's the second thing I want you to see. And this is a direct quote from Tim Keller, in the sermon he did on this passage. I think this was a really great point. Sometimes the God who's trying to save you feels like he's trying to kill you. (laughs) Sometimes the God who's trying to save you feels like he's trying to kill you. Elizabeth Elliot talks about seeing a farmer and the sheep had been infested by uh, all sorts of things. And so they created this bath of antiseptic, miserable stuff. But it was going to save their lives. Elizabeth, Elliot remembers seeing one of these lambs taken and dipped completely down inside this thing and then up and then down again. And that whole time, that lamb was just scared to death, fearing for its life. And Elizabeth says, now I know what it's like to be a sheep who thinks its shepherd is trying to kill it. And then she said, I know that feeling. Sometimes the very God that's trying to save you, it feels like he's trying to kill you. I think that's what Abraham experienced here. But that's not even the true nature of the scandal. You know, a lot of people want to say the moral of this story is you just believe God no matter how crazy it is no matter how outrageous it is if God says it, I believe it that settles it for me And if you really think about this story it doesn't really play out if you only see it through that lens this was really a horrific request confusing maddening there has to be something more significant going on and that's the scandal, the real scandal that I want to explore with you I so hope you can get this today First of all, you have to recognize that God doesn't ask Abraham simply to murder Isaac. He doesn't ask him just to kill his son. He asks him to offer his son up as sacrifice. And to fully understand the significance of that in Abraham's day, you have to understand the profound importance of the firstborn you see, we look at it and we lose that completely. But Abraham understood the symbolism, especially when God says, take your son, your only son. You see, ancient cultures were not individualistic like we are. Our hopes, our dreams, our success are all wrapped up in our individual accomplishment. They, they weren't that way. Their hopes, their dreams were all rooted in the family. The family was the core social structure. It was the primary political structure. It was the primary business. To wish good for an individual is rooted in the health and vitality of the family. Related to that is this hard and fast law of the primogenitor. That was universally practiced by ancient cultures Where the oldest son, the firstborn Virtually gets everything from the father We look back at that and see bigotry and bias But you have to understand The wealth had to stay with the family See, if I as a father had my three children back then It would not just be Sparling and inheritors It would be Sparling Incorporated So we're, uh, Vit and I, to die and to pass on our amazing amount of wealth that we have. Um, Here you go, guys. Uh, Enjoy it. Don't spend it all one place. That cash is gone and the family's gone. So the firstborn son was basically the CEO of the family enterprise. So everyone was cared for when the firstborn received the whole. That was the law of primogeniture. Now, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, God continually undermines that law. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. But what God does do is take this significant piece that was throughout every culture of its day, and he turns it into one of the most powerful analogies of his work of redemption. That is the key to understanding this text. Let's look at this. Throughout the law, you have God saying that the life of the firstborn is mine. For instance, the firstborn cattle, the first of the grain crops, even the firstborn son... Every family gave their firstborn son to serve God. Then God drew out this tribe of Levi who would serve, but God said, I still own the life of the firstborn, and you must redeem it. So five silver shekels were part of the price that was paid when you brought the child a month after its birth to the temple to dedicate it. In theory, when it was a firstborn child, you were bringing something that the temple had a right to claim. And in order to redeem it back, you paid silver. It's a, it's a powerful uh, image there that is just the piece of a broader puzzle. In Exodus, how does God judge Egypt for their rebellion against him, for their refusal to listen to him, for the treatment of Israel? What's the ultimate judgment? It takes the firstborn son. Even the Jewish people were under the weight of that. Their firstborn sons would also be taken were it not for the blood of a lamb on the doorposts. See? When God says, your firstborn son is forfeit to me, what he really means to the ancient culture is, there is a debt of sin in every family, and every family owes me. The firstborn represents God's claim for justice. Firstborn son represents the justice of God. Abraham understood this. We look back and say, that's outrageous. Yes, it was outrageous. It was extreme. It was difficult. It was confusing. Obeying, it was anguishing to him. But it was not inconceivable. If God had asked Abram to walk into Sarah's tent and kill her, he'd have known that wasn't the voice of God, and he'd have said no. But when God said to Abraham, take your firstborn and give him to me, for Abraham, that was God calling in his debt. Now we look at it and we see the real depth of the scandal. Let me present it to you so it's very clear. This is the dilemma that's been created for Abraham. The command of God at this moment is contradicting the promise of that very same God. How can the God of command be at the same time the God of promise? How can he say, kill Isaac, offer him as a sacrifice, and yet be the very one that said, through Isaac I'm going to make you a great nation? And here is the heart of the gospel challenge for us as a human race. How can God be a God of command and yet a God of promise? How can he be a holy God and a loving God? How can he be a God of justice and judgment and a God of mercy and grace? How can he be that? This is what this story opens up for us. The key is found in the ram in the thicket. Let's quickly flip the page. They head out, verse 3. Next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants, took Isaac, and they begin to head out. The end of verse 5. Uh, He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over and and, uh, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Interesting statement of faith there. The story for several verses is very fast paced and then there's a couple of moments where the writer slows down. Just like if you're watching a movie and an important action scene suddenly slows down and so you're able to watch every detail of the moment. This is one of those places. Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering Uh, And placed it on the son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. It's also interesting to note that Abraham holds on to everything that's dangerous. And then you see the only conversation recorded in the whole Bible between Isaac and Abraham. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. The word in Hebrew means see to it. In looking back, we know that God does provide. We know the outcome of the story. And we know that Abram names the mountain on which this occurs. The Lord will provide. But the word there means see to it. So what Abraham is literally saying to Isaac is, God will see to the lamb. He's saying, I don't know. I I don't know what's going to happen. But I've learned to follow a God that calls me, and he's always clear about what I'm supposed to leave. But he's never clear about where it's going to end. And I've learned that even in this moment, as hard as it is, he'll see to it. Because I can't. And you know what happens. Again, the scene slows down on the top of the mountain. Go through verse 9. They prepare the altar. And I picture this absolute silence as Abraham waiting for the voice of God, waiting for the voice of God. God is silent. God is silent. Finally, he takes his son, who by now is an adolescent, who could have resisted an old man. This was as much an act of faith for Isaac as it was for Abraham, and he binds him. God is silent. He puts him on the altar. And God is silent. And there is this moment where the whole scene slows down as Abraham reaches out his hand, it says. And he took the knife to slay his son. And it was at that moment only a breath away from obedience. Finally, God speaks. This time he has to say it twice. Maybe Abraham is having such a hard time. He says it twice to get his attention. Abraham, Abraham. And this time, here I am. And God says, don't harm your son. Now I know. And it's interesting what he says. He doesn't say, now I know you believe in me. He says, now I know you fear me more than anything else. Awe and respect. God is God. We don't try to understand him. We just walk by faith, letting him see to it. Abraham looks over, sees a ram in the thicket, sacrifices the ram, and he does return with his son just as he by faith predicted. And he calls the place, the mountains of Moriah, God will provide. Now, here is the power of this. Why would God ask Abraham to do this? God is acting in a way that is far bigger than what he's doing in Abraham's life. He's setting a historical marker for what will transpire 1,800 years later. Do you know what Mount Moriah is? It's the mountain range on which the city of Jerusalem would be built. Today, where the great mosque is and where the ruins of the temple are, is traditionally the very place where Isaac was offered up before God as the firstborn to satisfy the justice of God. 1,800 years later, another only son climbed that same mountain. But this time, he was God's only son. Now, I want you to think about this. This is really important. Exodus 22, the firstborn represents the justice of God. The ram in the thicket, the ram, represents the goodness of God. But we all know, looking back, that Isaac really couldn't have paid for the sins of his family. And we also know that the blood of animals was never enough to pay for the sins either. Why are they there? Listen again. The firstborn represents the justice of God. The ram in the thicket represents the graciousness of God. This is how God can be a God of command and a God of promise a holy God, and a good God, a just God, and a God of grace and mercy. How did he do it? He had a firstborn. He had an only son. Jesus himself said in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. John the Baptist refers to that very firstborn son as the Lamb of God. It takes away the sins of the world. Do you see it? Do you see the beauty of it? Both Isaac and the ram show us Christ. Jesus is both the firstborn of God and therefore satisfies God's justice. He's also the Lamb of God. And through his death, he demonstrates and makes possible God's grace. Whew. That's why... Abraham was asked to do this. He was part of a blessing that was going to happen generations later. And the same way, Abraham's faith, as fragile as it was, put in the promise of God, counted him as righteousness. Now we look back 2,000 years later, almost with Christ dividing the timeline between us and Abraham. And we look back at the fulfillment of that promise. And what is it that brings us righteousness? It's our belief fragile as it is, as weak as it is, as human as it is, put in the Christ of God. This is one of those moments where God's plan and the eternal nature of it, going back so far, is so clear, I want you to consider those of you who are still pondering your faith in Christ, that this is not the moment where you finally surrender to it, where you see that he can be a holy God and a loving God, where he can judge justly and yet show mercy. And the way he did that was not to hold you responsible for your sin, but to hold his son responsible. And through that, you can be righteous. You can be forgiven. You can take the faith you have. It might just be like the father of the demoniac son. I believe, help my unbelief. That's enough. Put it in Christ, the Lamb of God.